get started here. Better than yesterday. <laughs> amen. I just don't say amen. That's right. Better than yesterday. We were, we were struggling trying to get the video stuff going, but praise God, we got that going. We got it going today. I'm not a video man myself, but uh, fortunately, we were saved by the people who needed to be here to save us. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Welcome once again to our presentation today with Tony Moore. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Today, his subject is going to be um, the biblical history to cut a covenant. Education, different folks, different strokes. So that's going to be Tony's topic today. We're ha happy to have you with us today, Tony. Yeah. Yep. So, just the first one. Just the first one. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Biblical history to cut a covenant. Yep. Thank you. So we're going to get started now with a word of prayer, and uh, happy to have you all with us today. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we want to thank you, Lord, for this time that we have to learn more about your word uh, through archaeology, Lord, through looking at the history, biblical history. We uh, ask you, dear Father in heaven, to be with Tony as he shares with us today. Be with those who are here today, Lord. May they be blessed with what he has to share, Lord. May it help us to all have a closer walk with your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray in the name of your son. Amen. Well, good afternoon. I'm glad that we're set up and we're not doing different strokes for different folks and we are doing to cut a covenant, and we're drawing from some of the material from our new series, The World of the Patriarchs. Put a few new things out here. Uh, I didn't bring the big archaeological case. I brought it out to do some meetings in Mont Eagle. Is that the way you say that? Mont Eagle, Tennessee, with my good friend, Pastor Schneider uh, Schnell, a couple of weeks ago. But I left that out in uh, Hatteras because I don't like to travel with it, but that's a flight case. These are the freshest things that I take on the airplane with me. And... Uh, I'll just tell you about a couple of these little things. You may want to look at them afterward. And this is actually, a, you've heard of the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, and I don't know what we live in, the Nuclear Age. This is actually from the Chalcolithic Age. So it's before they started putting tin into copper to make it bronze. So it's very, very early. Don't ask me how early, I don't know. But anyway, there's a, we have some of our things from Mesopotamia here. We have two Asherah goddesses up here. So I put another one out today. These are fertility goddesses that they would uh, use to try and uh, help things along. And then this is actually an interesting one. It's actually, can you hear it? It's a religious rattle. I thought it was a baby rattle, but it was actually a religious rattle. And so it looks to me like a chicken or a turkey, but anyway. And then, it's not really from the time, from a, the time of Abraham, but since I've got the Jesus materials up here, we have a tear bottle here, which is a Roman glass and uh, it's very dainty, and they say, a little debatable, but they say that the ancients would collect their tears in a bottle and then under times of extreme sorrow or emotion poured them out. So if you follow that story, Mary's not under the table with an onion, she's under the table with her tear bottle, pouring out a lifetime of sorrow. But then I ran across this little baby. This is actually an alabaster jar. And if you feel it, if you're careful when you feel it, it's a fraction of the weight of the tear bottle, even though it's twice as large. And so it actually, they would grind the alabaster and put it into the glass and blow it, and it is perfectly smooth. So we hear that song broken and spilled out, and we think, oh, breaking the bottle. Actually, they'd break the seal on the top of the bottle and then pour out the nard. And by the way, how much did the nard cost? 
A year's wages, how much was it in coins? What kind of a coin was it? A denarii, or a denarius, and there were 300 denarii. So maybe tomorrow I'll give you some coins. I did bring some coins, and we can look at some biblical coins if you're interested in things like that, including denarii's and temple shekels and all those kinds of good things. There's one more thing here that I put out. We, uh, in the series on archaeology, we do one on Egypt, and then Petra, and then Jerusalem, and then the world of Jesus. This is kind of an interesting. I'll just hop down and see if my people in the front row can help me. What is that? A key? It's a pointer. You see the little finger? It's a finger. So just think, what happens to your Bible after 20, 30, 40, 50 years of reading it, and you're following on with your finger? What happens to the pages? They wear out, but something else happens. The oils from your finger start discoloring them. But think if you had the Bible in your family for 400 years. So the Jewish people, it's called a yod, they would use this as a pointer so they wouldn't touch the scroll as they're reading. Now this happens to be a fancy dancy when it's called filigree, it's Iranian silver, uh, very interesting. And then another one, since I put a few things out from the time of Jesus, this is called a mezuzah. What's the most important prayer in Judaism according to, what's the most important prayer according to Jesus? Love the Lord your God. Well, I should say the most important commandment. It's actually a prayer. What was it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But it starts out, Hero Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I've got a good friend that I've met here. He's from Zambia. He's part of the Zambian Air Force. And uh, when we met the other night up at the inn, I started laughing because I taught church planters over there one year in Riverside Farms for a couple of weeks. And my great accent... It's called Shema, means to hear. So I was tired from jet lag, and I was calling it Shema. And all the guys are like, oh, they're all, you know why? That's the white cornmeal they eat three times a day. <laughs> they think our, our, our food's in the Bible, Shema. <laughs> anyway, Shema means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it says, tell these things to your children when you walk in the way, when you drive in, well, not when you drive in the car, but you know, you, you get the point. When you lay down at night, put it on the doorpost of your house. And then I bought this one. It's also out of filigree because it actually has the four passages of Scripture written on it inside of it. Now, today, they don't tend to do that they, for economic reasons and so on. Often, by the way, the scroll will cost more than the silver that it's in because you have some special rabbi who copies it and puts it in there. And, of course, you'll see them sometimes wearing them on their forehead and on their arm. And of course, I believe that God was saying, put it in your forehead, your mind, so you know what is right, and in your heart, so you love what is right, right? But they do it literally, and they put one box here on their arm to be close to their heart, and they do that for morning prayers. So the one on the forehead has four scrolls, same passage of scripture, and the one on the heart has one scroll. Now, I thought we might do something a little different this morning, this morning, this afternoon. Um, I told you that in the manual there are some nice little things for a Bible study. So we're going to talk about to cut a covenant. And I uh, just remind you that we do lots of seminars and they're available on DVDs and also on streaming where you can use them for Bible studies in small groups and in your church. If you come up, I even put some advertising. I say this tongue in cheek because I don't know you. I can say it. This is a beautiful one on tracing the footsteps of Jesus, right? Have you ever wondered what your neighbors might think 
from the mail they get from your church. Same stuff every year, four or five times a year. I just tell people, why don't you put the Jesus series into the mix once in a while, right? So anyway, you can look at that as a beautiful brochure that you can use to send out and invite people or a beautiful postcard like this or even some coming to a home in your neighborhood. So it's great to do in small groups or in even a public venue and uh, to share with other people. We also do biblical tours. Our next tour is in Egypt. That's become my favorite tour, Egypt and the Bible. That's uh, on our website, biblicalworld.org tour. And uh, that's October 30 to November 14. And so we do many of these things. I'm hoping if the week progresses that I can share some with you from our new series on the Exodus. If not, maybe one day they'll invite me back and we can look at that. We're uh, very excited in filming that right now. And as I told you yesterday about the world of the patriarchs, we're working on the world of the Exodus. We hope to have that out this fall. And the world of the kings, we hope to start filming this fall and next spring. And then add to that prophets, Jesus, apostles, and the early church. There was no room for that. And as I said, there's seven episodes, so we're kind of looking at some of these episodes. We kind of covered a lot of them, one and two yesterday, and we'll look at number three and some other stuff today, and uh, then press on. And as I said, it's on a DVD or by membership. You can dig into all of that. It's down at the ABC on DVD, and there's some material up here if you'd like to know more about the membership. Now, I also told you that the, we have some homework. You want to do some? Should we try something for a couple of minutes? I want to do this because some of you are asking me, when did Abraham live, right? So let's explore and just see. If you have your Bible, look up Exodus 20, verse 40. How many years did the Israelites live in Egypt? It's not quite 430 yet. It's just 215. Okay, 430 years. First Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Now, this is interesting because if you watch the... Cecil de Mills, what is that? Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Who's the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Ramses. If you watch Disney's thing, who's the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Ramses. Everyone knows Ramses. If you look at Wikipedia, who's the Ramses? But First Kings chapter six, verse one is very interesting. It enables us to determine. So if you look in your Bible, just somebody look at it and just tell me, what does it tell us to help find out when the Exodus took place? 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, but then it goes on to say something else. Yeah, but it's another. Okay. So it's the fourth year of his reign, which was which year after they left the, the, Egypt? The 480th year. So it's the fourth year of his reign, but it was 480 years after. So we can take that. And we can kind of date back to find out where the Bible says the Exodus should happen. Is that good? Okay. So we got 480 years, and the reign we think is 967. So if we add those two together, we get 1447. And so that should be about the time of the Exodus. Except, this is a cardinal number. And uh, so a number ending with TH is an ordinal number versus a cardinal number. So you have to add one year, right? So we do that, and we have 1446. And this is kind of the conservative scholar approach to when the Exodus would take place. And by that, by the way, is going to put us around Tutmosis III and Hatshepsut for the stepbrother of Moses and the stepmother of Moses. Okay? But we can't talk about that today. So to determine when Jacob came to Egypt, we have to add 430 years. So what will we have? Somebody's calculating quickly in their mind or with their phone. 
1876. Okay, so we'd have then Jacob coming to Egypt in 1876 if the 430 years go from Jacob coming down to Moses. Now, I think I told you there's, there's a bit of debate in this. So the Hebrew says very clearly this, the Septuagint says 430 years in Egypt and Canaan. So some try and say it's kind of both, right? And it gets us into an interesting thing, is the Exodus taking place 430 years after Abraham comes, and you go 215 years to Jacob, and then conveniently 215 years from Jacob down to the Exodus, or is it actually when Jacob goes? If you read the context, it seems pretty clear they're being mistreated, and they're not really that mistreated in Canaan, but they are being mistreated in, in Egypt. So Abraham then would arrive in Canaan 215 years earlier in 2091 BC, to answer your question from yesterday. And so how old was Abraham when he left Haran? 75, and that means Abraham would be born around 2166 BC, okay? That's the end of the early Bronze Age, as we talked about in that time period. So he's 75, so we do our little calculations, and that's how we get to that. Now, where was Abraham from? Somebody came up and asked me about this one yesterday. He, sorry? Ur. So in Nehemiah, it says Ur of the Chaldees. So some Jewish and even Muslim, most Muslims believe it's San Lu'urfa near Haran. If it is, they only made about 15 miles after they left on that long journey before the father died. So I think that it's uh, personally Ur of the Chaldeans down in southern Turkey. So the question then becomes, did God call Terah or Abraham to leave Ur? Ur? It depends. In Genesis, he calls Terah. In Acts, he calls Abraham. And maybe Genesis is just giving precedence to the patriarchal system of the father and honoring him in that way. I think God called Abraham uh, personally, but it does say that, that other. So sometimes it's not quite as clear as we wish it would be. Now, I'm going to put this up in case you want to do it. We're going to take time because we'll run out of time on the other things we're doing. Paul throws a kind of an interesting curve in Galatians 3 about some of this, about a covenant. Are you interested in things like that? Paul throws an interesting, should we, should we look at it briefly? Okay. I've got to find some glasses in a phone that I can look up Galatians. Let's look at Galatians 3 for a moment. Now, I have on the second row my trusty friend with her glasses on who has been a nice proofreader for a lot of my materials. And also a guinea pig, Patty, and uh, I sent her stuff, and I sent this, and she had a friend that did not like what I said at all about the dating. So, you know, I cut my teeth under William Shea, in my opinion, one of our greatest scholars in the Adventist Church and, and so on. In the early days, you know, he taught the short chronology. In the latter years, he taught the long chronology. And when I worked on the series, I had a switch because I used to teach the short chronology also. But there's a text that kind of is a little challenging. It's Galatians chapter 3, so let's see if we can find it. And this is all, all the, by the way, it's all in your study manual. And it takes you into that and it gives you lots of annotations and lots of information and so on. Turn my phone off. So for some reason, I paid for a Bible and that's wanting to you now give me a hard time since I didn't put this on the 
Okay, so Galatians chapter 3. And we should go down to around verse 15. Okay, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that had been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not to say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So it seems to say that's 430 years from what? From the covenant that was made until the law was given. So at face value, the covenant is made with who? So let's go to Psalm 105, verse 8, and just see if we should trust face value or should we dig a little deeper. Sorry, normally I put these things up, but I wasn't going to do this. Verses 8 through 10. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion you will inherit. So here the promise is made to Abraham. It's reaffirmed to Isaac. But it's confirmed to who? Jacob. To Jacob. So when you read carefully in Galatians 3, it says he established or confirmed the covenant. And 430 years later, the law came. So it can't set aside that. So now let's go to Genesis 46 and see what I think is important in this context. Genesis 46, verses 1 to 4. So Israel, which is Jacob, left, set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices. Now remember, Joseph is down there. He's revealed himself to his brothers. He's saying, come down, right? Jacob's nervous. He's an old guy. He doesn't want to go down. He doesn't really trust these brothers and so on, what's going on, right? He offered sacrifices to the, God, to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So what is God doing? He's confirming the covenant. So the covenant was made earlier with Abraham, reaffirmed to Isaac. But now he's confirming or establishing it with Jacob because he's afraid to go down. And he said, don't worry, I'm going to bring you back after 430 years. So, again, I know that people can see this differently. In our series, we're taking the long date, and it works out wonderfully that you will one day see if you do the series that we're doing on the Exodus as to how it all plays out. Okay, so enough of that. We'll jump into that today to cut a covenant. So yesterday we talked about Abram's lack of faith and how it led him to leave the land of promise and go down to the land of Egypt and how he got into hot water down there, he got into trouble. God's whole plan is thrown into jeopardy when Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem, right? And so now God has to intervene by talking to Pharaoh and sending a plague on the people where they could, probably could not have children. And so they determined that it's something going on with Abraham and Sarah. And so we saw yesterday that Abraham could not hear God speaking, but Pharaoh could. 
And so he then sends Abraham out with all the dowry he had gotten. You could keep the dowry, but you have to leave Egypt, and you have to go now. So chasing Abraham and Sarah returned to the land of promise with their extended family. Bible says, so Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, means dry, the south part of the land, with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to where? Now remember we saw when he was, before he went from Shechem to Bethel, and what did he do in Bethel? He built an altar. The place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name, or Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now this is interesting to me. He's, let's just assume that I'm right, that he goes down to Egypt out of a lack of faith. Faith is kind of on the rocks. He's devastated. God intervenes in spite of all that, sends him back home. And uh, God sends him back home, and now he is chastened. So what does he do? I want you to think of this. This is Bethel, as we saw yesterday. In spite of his duplicity, Abram returns wealthier than he left. Yeah, I just want to say we had someone just fall. You have, they've got a very treacherous thing here on the floor to run these cords up. And uh, so sorry. It's a very treacherous thing, so whenever you're walking, you have to constantly, well, I've tripped on it two or three times, as she just did. So sorry. In spite of his duplicity, he returned wealthier than he left. Now, here's the principle. When you're in the dark, you go where you know the light is shining, right? Sometimes we get off the path, we need to go back to where we last saw the light shining. And that's what Abraham does. The last time he'd heard God was back in Bethel, so now he goes back to that place and he listens. And then something interesting happens. Strife breaks out. The two families have grown so large that they're now having strife over the land. Now this is a land right here at Bethel. You can see how it's scrubbed land. It's not going to support lots and lots of flocks. You can see the shepherd walking down here at the bottom. You can see the topsoil comes off. This is right in the area of Bethel. This guy has his, his cistern or well on the top. We just see the sheep trying to make a living there. And this is the good time of year. This is the, the springtime. And uh, they're trying to make their living there. So the Bible says, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So what, what does the Bible compare the land of Egypt to? The garden of Eden. What? That doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm standing in Israel here. I'm looking across. You can see the little sand hills in the middle of the picture. That's the Jordan River down in the deepest part of that. And then you look further over and we see the mountains of Gilead in this instance. The mountains of Gilead in the country of Jordan. So he's looking across the Jordan River to the other side. And the Bible says it's more fertile. It's like the land of Egypt and like Eden, the Garden of God. How can that be? Well, here we can kind of see the farms over there. And so this is actually taking this from Zarathan. Remember, that's where they built it. Look at these farms. This is on the Jordanian side. Now, this is down in Egypt. So it's comparing it to Egypt. But the Jordan side, because of the, this is the Mesopotamia, I'm sorry, the Euphrates River, where Lot and Abraham came from. So they're very familiar with this type of world. But the Bible calls it like the land of Egypt. So 
Again, what's going on here? So Lot looked around and saw the whole plain, well watered. And then I want you to notice he chose for himself. Do you think he asked the Lord about this? Chose it for himself. So he set out toward the east. Now, here we are. He's between Bethel and Ai, right? And he's going to go down, cross over the Jordan River. And most scholars believe he goes down to southeastern Jordan. I know a lot of you are going to say, oh, it's on the other side because somebody found God. What kind of balls? Sulfur balls. We go by archaeology and what's, what's really there, okay? So Babadraw is a real city that was there, along with four ruins of four other cities. And then Zor is still there. It's called Al-Safi today. They're the only cities from that whole time period that are still there that we can find the remains of, okay? So it's well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Can we make sense out of that? Well, well watered comes from the word that's used for a king's cupbearer. The purpose of the cupbearer is to keep the king's glass full. We think because we come from a wonderful land like North Carolina that it's all about rain. By the way, somebody asked me a question. I told them I'd answer it today. I'm going to just pause for a second. God takes them to a land flowing with... First time I took my wife there, she had a crisis of faith. It wasn't like North Carolina. So where do you get milk from? Cows. Where do they get milk from? Goats. So it's a land for raising goats. That's a problem because we think about it. You have to have a lot of flowers for enough pollen for the bees to make honey, right? They didn't cultivate honey in biblical times. You, you remember the story of Samson, but that was a hit or miss deal, right? Jonathan, you know, there's stories, but they're not cultivating it like we, we do today. Later on, they start doing that. But they grew grapes. And they'd take the grapes and they'd boil it down to a thick paste in Arabic. It's called dibs or dibis. And that would be grape honey. I can take you to the old city of Jerusalem on a tour. We can go to the shops and we can buy grap honey. They spell J G R A P space H U N Y. <laughs> I always love that. Anyway, Christians would use grap honey or dibs or dibis to reconstitute the grapes for communion through the centuries. Right? They didn't have welches and they didn't have bottled stuff and so on, so they would actually use it. So it's a land for raising goats and growing grapes like Southern California where I now live and not like beautiful North Carolina where I grew up. Okay? The problem is we project our world into our reading of the Bible instead of letting the Bible project its world to us. Okay? And so it's just a different kind of, it's a Mediterranean climate, just a different kind of climate than we're not used to. Well here it's well watered, so here there are springs that are coming up. I'm going to show you something phenomenal in just a second. While there is some debate as to the location of the verdant city of Sodom, most scholars believe it was at the southern end of the Dead Sea. There are thousands of springs in the cliffs above the Jordan Valley and Dead Sea where the water from the winter rains spring eternal. Even today, the lush green agricultural areas jump out from the monotone colors of the surrounding arid rocks. But none of these areas are as stunning as the 109 springs of Ma'in. The water from these springs, combined with the abundant sunshine and warm temperatures, allows plants to thrive in an almost tropical sense. So that's well watered, right? And again, we're just projecting our world and what we're familiar with instead of doing that. When I saw that for the first time, it made sense about Sodom being over on that other side. 
I get technical, what happens is all the rain gets wrung out as it comes to Israel, going up the mountains, kind of like Southern California or the West Coast. It all gets wrung out, and when you go on the other side, it's very dry, and then you go down to the Jordan River. But when you go over to the Jordan side, and there are four kingdoms, biblically speaking, there's going to be Gilead's game is the acronym, game, Gilead, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, and they had a highway called the King's Highway, but all of the water that falls over there goes back to the Jordan Valley or to the Dead Sea Valley. Does that make sense? But it comes in springs, so they're just prodigious springs all around. Sodom happened to be one of those. Now, the Bible says, Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, the two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Oh, that's interesting. He's not in Sodom, but he's near Sodom. Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. Lot leaves, and now God speaks to Abram. He hears his voice again. That's pretty cool, right? And God says, Go walk through the land, the length and breadth of the land. I'm giving it to you. Now, if you can see the map, and I know it's hard to see, you see Dan up in the north. You see Beersheba in the south, a distance of about 140 miles, about the size of our state of Vermont in America. Very small land, very narrow. And Abram's going to walk from those points. Now, normally he's going to walk basically from Shechem down to Beersheba and a little further south. That's all on the top of the mountain range. That was his range. He would go back and forth in that. And God says, I'll give you all this land to you. Now, it's the first time he heard God's voice since leaving Egypt. He has to be excited. This is Dan up in the north. Originally, it was a town called Leshem or Laish because the tribe of Dan were not able to oust the Philistines who were living in the area of Tel Aviv and Bin Laden Airport, if you happen to go on a trip over there. That's the most fertile area. Couldn't, couldn't oust them, so they go up and they take this. Now, what's cool about this gate is it happens to be a 4,000-year-old Canaanite gate. So after the tribe of Dan comes up and takes this land, they incorporate this into the wall because they make the city bigger, and that was in the wall until they opened it up and they found it, and it's the most preserved Canaanite gate they found from that, that era. And then we go down to, to Beersheba in the south, and we can see how dry and desolate it is, just about eight inches of rain, so a totally different land as you go from north to south. That's the traditional borders. Abraham is told to go and walk around. It's a great promise, wasn't it? But how does Abraham relate to it? It's what? Hollow. You said you're going to bring me here and give me all this land to my children, and I don't have any children. Right? What good is it to give me all this land if there's nobody to come after me to inherit it? Right? He's childless. As the years passed, verse 18 says that Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, there he built an altar to the Lord. Now you can see between Jerusalem and Beersheba, we see Hebron. Hebron is very nice, about 3,000 feet above sea level. Grow a lot of grapes there, very rocky. From the top, by the way, you can see across the Dead Sea, and you can see across the Dead Sea to Babadraw, we've been talking about, or biblical Sodom, when you go up onto the ridge. So he pitches his tent there, he moves down there. And then the Bible describes how these kings, there are four of them, they came from Mesopotamia, and they come all the way over and they attack the Pentopolis, the five cities of the plain. Now, we, I tell you, I, if you haven't figured out, I'm very left-brained and very skeptical. And I'm thinking, really? 
four kings coming from Mesopotamia over here. Why would they do that? Well, you can kind of see where I've got Babadra on the map. It's in red, biblical Sodom, Zor, and you can see there was actually a road that went down. They've actually found the road from that period of time that went down. And then we discovered that Babadra was most unusual. We find 500,000 people buried there. Now, I don't know how we calculate all this, but we you know they found the 20,000 shaft tombs and when they dug it up. And then these pottery, like pieces of pottery like this, I have tons of it from that period of time because they found over 3 million pieces of pottery buried with them. Okay, now a lot of that pottery is on the market. And if it was found before 1967, it's a legal trade to buy it in Israel. And so if you dug it up yesterday, when was it found? Yeah, you figure. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is, while Babadraw is a very small town like Jericho, I think we talked about Jericho being about 1,000 people, about 1,000 people inside the city, they've got one huge industry of burying people. It appears it's not just a nomadic camp, it's all the people in the land are coming there to be buried for some reason. We don't know why. And so as they're coming to be buried, you gotta have tomb diggers, pottery makers, all these other things you wanna bury people with, incense people, just think of all the industry that's going on over there in Sodom. So it's not just a little town, but a major town. So these guys from Mesopotamia come over here because they're wanting taxation for all of this. Make sense? Now it starts to make sense. So there's all this industry going on, and they want taxation, so they come down and try and take it over, and uh, they capture Lot and his family, and it's not too good for Lot and for the other. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan is in the foothills of Mount Hermon and is the primary source of the Jordan River. The water comes from the melting snow on the mountain emerging from the largest karst spring in the Middle East. It is one of the most lush and verdant areas in the land of promise and a delight to hike in and to enjoy. In Abram's day, it was known as Laish or Leshem, its name being changed to Dan after the conquest when the tribe of Dan settled here. This impressive mud brick Canaanite gate is called the Abraham Gate since it dates back to the 18th century BC, the general time of Abram. It was later incorporated into the city wall and then abandoned when the city expanded during the Israelite period. Abram recovered the stolen goods and the captives, including his nephew Lot and his family. During their triumphant return, they passed by Salem where a most unusual meeting took place. So you might notice that there's some eye candy. I call it eye candy in our video series. And so when there's eye candy like that, I want to let you see Mount Hermon. We say Mount Hermon, right? Mount Hermon, my, my good southern accent. Mount Hermon, and it's snow-capped. And that's actually the source of the Jordan River, right? Three sources, primary sources there, and then it comes down. So Abram now is going to go from Hebron. He's going to chase all the way up to Dan on the very north. He captures those probably guards, probably not actually the kings, but probably, you know, they had sent their, their army or scouts or whatever. They weren't expecting a big fight. 
and Abraham defeats them. So he rescues them, Lot and his family. And so the kings that he rescued, they say, look, you can take all the booty, just let us go back home. Abraham says, you're not going to say you made me wealthy. I'm not going to take any of your stuff, right? And, but as they start returning home, he stops at Salem, and he pays tithe to the king of Salem. Now, you might remember that Salem means peace, and Jerusalem is the city of peace. So he stops at Jerusalem. It's not called Jerusalem at that time. It's just called Salem. Later, it become Jerusalem. Now, not only was this guy that he paid tithe to the king, what else was he? He was a priest of El Elyon. So he's the priest of El Elyon, which happens to be the god Abraham worships, right? And so he's paying tithe to this priest. Now, who is this guy, anyway? Now, the rabbis, as I was researching, many of them believe it's Shem, the son of Noah. Is it possible? I don't know. I don't really believe that, but that's what many of them believe, that it's Shem. Oh, interesting. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3 says, the author says, without father or mother about him, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, and that suggests to many people that this is actually pre-existent Jesus, right? Have you heard that? And so we kind of struggle, what, what does it mean? Because he says he doesn't have a mother or father, doesn't have a beginning of days or end of life, there's no genealogy, we don't know where he came from, did he just appear there? What was going on? Now, I want you to just think for a moment. The author of the Hebrews is faced with a challenge. And what's his challenge? He's trying to tell us in Hebrews that Jesus is the what? The high priest, right? What's the problem? If you're a Jew, what's the problem? Priests come from Levi. Jesus doesn't come from Levi. He comes from Judah. So that's a major problem, right? So the author of the Hebrews, which I believe is Paul does the most wonderful thing by going back in time and finding a priest that Abram paid tithe to long before Levi comes on the scene, right? So how can Jesus be a high priest? He reaches way back to this priest king of Salem and, uh, and says Melchizedek didn't inherit the priesthood from his father. We don't even know who his father was. We have no record of where he came from, right? He's not trying to say that he was divine in some way. He's just saying, we don't have any record of this. Therefore, Jesus could also be a priest like Melchizedek. As a matter of fact, we don't even know who his parents were. So then the apostle quotes the 110th Psalm, where David predicts the arrival of a priest in the order of Melchizedek, who would remain a priest forever. So the apostle Paul, I believe, is marshalling these arguments that Jesus is the priest that won't just be for. 60 years or 50 years or 100 years, he'll be forever. And he's in the order of Melchizedek in that it was not inherited from Levi. It was given by God. Does that make sense? So that's what this very interesting figure is going on there. Jesus is the priest. Okay, so the four Babel kings attack the Pentopolis, the five cities. Lot and his family are taken prisoner. Abraham rescues his family and the others. Dan brings them down to Jerusalem and then allows them to go back home, probably across the... Dead Sea, Valley, the Jordan River to Babadraw. And then Abraham goes back to the Oaks of Mamre. And while he's there, the years pass, and Abraham starts wondering. He starts wondering, what if those guys come back? I had 318 trained men, but maybe I got 400 now, but these are big, powerful kings. What if they come back with a big force? He starts worrying about that. 
Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. Don't you love that? How often would Jesus say that? Right? Don't be afraid. Often reaching out and touching you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am your shield. If they come back, I'll protect you. I'll be your shield. And your very great reward, Abram. He goes, well, that's good. But there's still a problem, right? There's still a problem. It's reassuring, but God, sovereign Lord, verse 2, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. It's great, God, that you're going to protect me in the future, but I don't have anybody to follow me. And right now, the guy who's going to inherit my estate is Eliezer. They I got in Damascus. It's very interesting that we now know from the Mesopotamian laws, primarily the Hammurabi Code, that this was the tradition that if a couple did not have a child, an heir, they could choose a servant in their family and make them the heir. And that's what Abram is kind of resigning himself to do. He said, God, this is just not working out. You said I'm going to have these children and we're going to inherit all this land and it really sounds great, but it's not happening. Verse 4, this man will not be your heir. Wow, isn't that beautiful? This man will not be your heir, but a son who is from your own flesh and blood will be your heir. I just want to stop for a moment. What does that text not say? I'm sorry? It didn't say Sarah will be the mom. It's very important. We have to put down markers, don't we? You will have one from your own flesh and blood. So this is going to, we're going to come back and visit this maybe tomorrow. Because it doesn't say Sarah is the mom. Forgive me if you don't like that. But anyway... Be your heir. Then he t- and we don't want to miss the, the majesty of what's about to happen. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Wow. Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now that is a pivotal moment in biblical history because the Apostle Paul will take that and build his teaching of justification by faith on that story. As we see out throughout Galatians, this becomes the basis of Paul's teaching of justification by faith of Abraham believing God and God counting him righteous as a result. By the way, we, we toyed around a little bit with Galatians. We don't have time to get into all of that. But that's what the issue is. Jewish people look back to two great events in history. They look back to Abraham and to Moses. And sometimes they got mixed up as to what was first. Paul will always teach Abraham was first, and the gift of salvation came through faith in Abraham, right? He believes God, and he's gifted salvation. The law is to tell you how you should live and to give you guidelines on living. They would get it mixed up and think that's how they would find salvation. So Paul's very, very clear in Galatians. That's why he has to write Galatians. People are getting tripped up back in those days, and they get tripped up today on both sides of the issue, don't they? So here, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Paul will build his teaching of justification by faith on that. Then he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now, he believes, but he's wanting a little bit of a sign, right? How can I believe? How can I know? 
So what follows is one of the strangest stories in all of Scripture. Remember what, you know, he's told to bring a three-year-old heifer, female cow, right? He's told to bring a three-year-old ram, one turtle dove and one pigeon. He's told to slaughter them ritually. So he slaughters and cuts them in half. He puts one half of the heifer on this side, one half on this side, one half of the ram on this side, one half on this side. Puts one turtle dove on one side, one pigeon on the other. And there's a bunch of blood around, so you can just imagine what's going to happen in that part of the world. There are going to be scavengers wanting to come, birds wanting to come. So he spends the rest of the afternoon chasing the birds away, remember? He's just trying to get the birds away, walking in and out of those pieces of meat that have been there, probably doing a figure eight, going back and forth, chasing them away, chasing them away, chasing them away. And then the story goes on and something even more strange happens. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. By the way, does that sound like they're in the land of Canaan? Not enslaved and mistreated, right? You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So now God promises that what will happen in the future. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Can you imagine? Smoking torch, fire pot, going in and out of the pieces, just like Abraham had gone in and out of the pieces all afternoon. See the point? So that's going to probably the same figure eight that Abraham was doing. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give that, this land. So that day he makes a covenant with Abraham, right? That's interesting. So let's just focus on that for a moment. When you look at the Hebrew, the word covenant has been nine times before this in the book of Genesis. But now it doesn't say made a covenant. It actually says cut a covenant. That's the first time that's used. The Lord cut a covenant with Abraham. That's why Abraham cut those animals in half. That's why he slaughtered the pigeon and the turtle dove and laid them on each side. That day the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham, Abram. So there's a tangible promise to Abraham that God has made that's now ratified by cutting a covenant. So what does that mean? Well, let's look into it. It's interesting that the Bible says David and Jonathan also cut a covenant, okay? So the poorly informed often read the story of Jonathan and David, and they kind of say they loved each other, and they kind of say, oh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. They're poorly informed on that. They have deep friendship and deep love for one another, but not in that way that some people try and project today. Here's a text. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Text says he cut a covenant with David as he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So they're exchanging clothes in this covenant, right? So let's see if we can try and discern a little bit more of this. So typically, when they would do a covenant like this, they would stand before each other, they'd take off their outer garment and exchange it, right? 
They give it to the person they're making the covenant with. And then they would say, I'm giving myself to you. Whoever touches you touches me. Right? So they're making this deep covenant and agreement. They'd often change their names. No longer will you be Jonathan, you'll be David, and I'll be Jonathan. Right? They're making a covenant. They're cutting a covenant. They'd exchange belts. We see that the sword's resting on the belt, so Jonathan takes off his belt. We have to assume David takes off his belt. They exchange belts and swords, the symbol of strength and power. Then they would slaughter the animal and cut it in half and walk between the pieces, just like Abram had done earlier. And we believe they would say, we have all rights and privileges to one another. If we ever break our covenant, may God do to us as we have done to this animal. Ooh, pretty stiff covenant, right? But they're pledging themselves to one another to protect and defend one another. And then they would cut their hand and shake, becoming blood brothers. And we believe our handshake really descends from this. And then they would share bread and wine. By the way, after Melchizedek came out and they paid tithe, what did he serve them? Bread and wine. Very interesting. We think about the communion service coming, don't we? So later, Jonathan and his father are killed, and David becomes king. David's ruling as king, and maybe one day he's washing his hands, and he feels something. Now, typically, when a person became king, you killed all of the potential challengers to your throne, right? You'd wipe out all the others. It sounds barbaric, but we see that's just what they would do. Washing his hands, he feels the scar. And he remembers, I cut a covenant with my friend Jonathan. Have any of his children survived the civil war that's ensued after his death and his father's death? 2 Samuel chapter 9, David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now you have to wonder what his advisors are thinking. Is he really that bloodthirsty? You know, is he really going to go after, you know, is he really going to search out here and, and, and do the enemy's list, the full, full, full deal? Now, there's a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. He's probably shaking in his boots, right, because he was with the former regime. Is there, still, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there's still a son of Jonathan, but he's lame in both his feet. He's, he's no threat to you. He's lame. He's a cripple. Right? He can't, he can't hurt you, David. Don't worry about him. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, do not be afraid. You can imagine he's quaking in his sandals, don't you think? Do not be afraid, for I will surely show kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. 
And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. Can you imagine the way his fortunes changed? Did he deserve it? No. But his father had made a covenant with this man, and this man was honoring the covenant. He had cut a covenant with David, and he loved him as himself. Because he treated, he cut that covenant, now he treats Mephibosheth as his own son. Not because he deserved it, because the covenant was made. All Mephibosheth had to do was accept the provision of the covenant. Now what's the take-home point? Jesus cut a covenant for us, didn't he? He cut a covenant, not with a handshake, but spilling his own blood. And each time he feels that scar, what does he think about? You, and you, and you, and me, right? He's feeling that each time. He's thinking about us. And each time we share the meal of that bread and wine, or grape juice and wine and, and bread, right? Each time we share the grape and the bread, we too should think about the covenant that Jesus cut for us. And that we're just as important or more important to him than Jonathan, Mephibosheth was to David because of the covenant he made with Jonathan. So to cut a covenant rich in its symbolism, and that's why God was teaching Abraham that day in the land with that strange smoking pot and flaming torch. And for that, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. <clears throat> so, why don't we do this? Why don't we do a little Bible study? Is that okay? We have a few minutes left, and uh, I think we finish at what time? 3.15? Okay. So, why don't we look and see? I, I, I want you to see how this would work if you were doing it as a Bible study. So, let's just see. We've got a great Bible study that happens to be in your study guide if you're doing this as, with your neighbors. And so, it, actually, we try, and I, did I tell you this? In all of these series, we try and do something that can link to a biblical teaching if it links organically. But we're not going to push something in to, to check off a box to make it not fit because then you lose credibility with your neighbors, right? So here's our exploring the word on your own. I'm sorry, I don't have it on the screen. Rabbi Saul uses a powerful story of Abraham believing God's promise and it being credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, verse 6. As a case study in righteousness by faith, he declared, the law and the prophets testify about this in Romans 3, verse 21. So after quoting the 53rd Psalm in Romans chapter 2, 10 to 18, what conclusion does Paul reach regarding both Jews and Gentiles in Romans chapter 3? Does anybody remember? Sorry? No one is righteous. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, what's the problem? Jews know Gentiles are in that boat. They don't realize they're in that boat. So he goes back and, and goes right to the source of the Psalms and says, we're all in the same boat. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and therefore, we're all in the same problem. So how does Paul teach that we can be justified? He teaches that we can all be justified through faith in Jesus, right, in Romans. So he's trying to go back and establish this for a Jewish mind on the story that's most important to Jewish people of Abraham. All right, so let's look at another one here. When Paul... 
How does Paul teach you we're justified in Romans chapter 3, verse 28? Let's look at that. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. So, for if we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, Paul goes back and he, he really drills down in this whole issue of justification by faith based on what was happening with Abraham. Abraham believed God and he is declared righteous or made just, right? And so then Paul moves on to the next one in chapter 4. Was this done before or after Abraham was circumcised? Before, right? He hasn't been circumcised yet, so what's he trying to say? It's not by works. Now, I want to deviate from, from Abraham for just a second and tell you something that's very important. In the early church, it's established that we're saved by grace through faith. The Judaizers come from Jerusalem, and what are they trying to teach? What, what, what prompts the, the council of Jerusalem? You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. What are they really saying in that? You can believe in Jesus all you want to, but unless you become a Jew, you can't be saved. But they're saying you've got to become a Jew. So in their world, they, they, you've got to become a Jew to be saved, right? So that prompts the thing of the Council of Jerusalem, and they debate this out and say, no, you don't have to do that, and they come up with the four things you don't have to do. But they're saying salvation is not by grace through faith. You have to become a Jew first. Now let me just kind of deviate a little bit more back to the first series I did on Paul that I shared here 18 years ago with you. What's interesting in that is Paul baptizes people in Antioch without circumcising them, without making them become Jews. He then goes with Barnabas and the young boy, Timothy, I'm sorry, John Mark, and as they're going along, he's baptizing people all through his travels without making them become Jewish. Why does John Mark leave and go back to Jerusalem? We always say he's homesick, but he, he's really, I believe, upset with Paul because he doesn't understand why Paul is allowing these people to, to be baptized in Jesus without first making them Jews, right? And so he doesn't have that clear. So Paul, you know, doesn't like that very much. And uh, later on will not take him with him. Yeah? Who else Yes, he, he, he certainly, Paul has the clearest explanation. Of course, we think about Peter, and, and God has to you know, knock him upside the head a little bit, right? With, with the, the things so that he can actually, who are we to withhold water baptism if, if they've already received the baptism of the Spirit and they can speak in other languages, right? With Cornelius. But Paul is the one who will really iron all this out so clearly. And so as you read Galatians, keep in mind, this is, this is the root issue of what's going on throughout Galatians. So in this... 
I just want to take it a little bit further because there's something that people sometimes just understand. So Paul calls circumcision, what does he call circumcision? He calls it the sign of righteousness by faith. So Paul's saying Abraham is circumcised as a sign of the righteousness that he already had by faith. So what's the problem in Paul's day? They're saying that the sign is the righteousness, not a sign of the righteousness that you have by faith. Does that make sense? They're putting you know, the cart after the horse, or before the horse, or whatever would be the appropriate way to say that. Okay, so. And then he goes on to teach in chapter 17 of Genesis that Abraham is the father of the uncircumcised believers and the circumcised believers, right? And then he says, let's just look at Romans chapter 4 for a moment. It's a powerful text. He teaches that we're credited with righteousness on what basis? Romans chapter 4. And we want to know this verses 23 to 25. Sorry, my Bible app went on the blink, so I have to look it up. So the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. To whom will God credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead? He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So again, he's always basing this upon faith in the death of Jesus. Now, I want you to go to something that people misunderstand all the time. We'll go to Galatians chapter 3. How does Paul identify the children of Abraham? Galatians chapter 3. This is a powerful text. It's often misunderstood. Galatians chapter 3. And um, we'll first notice verse 7. So we'll read 6 verse. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So Paul tries to drill this in again, the, the real children of faith. Now we come down to verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So when you look at that text, who is under the curse? Sorry? Well, what does it say? Don't interpret it for me. What does it say? Who's under the curse? Everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, remember, Paul's con confronting people who are getting mixed up between Moses and, a and Abraham, right? So, everyone who, you're cursed if you don't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. What do you call that? If you don't continue to do everything written in the book of the law, what, what is that? It's disobedience, right? It's disobedience. You're disobeying the law. So you're under the curse if you disobey the law, right? Right? Okay. So, verse 11. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, right? Because the righteous will live by faith, as he's quoting from Habakkuk. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. So again, he quotes from Leviticus. So he's saying that you will have salvation if you keep the law. Is that true? Okay. And I know this, this gets a little confusing sometimes because some of my colleagues 
are more confused than I am about it. Paul talks about an old covenant and a new covenant. What is the old covenant? Now, they, they reaffirm the Old Covenant, but the Old Covenant's around before the people say that with Moses when they, in, in, in Exodus. It's, it's, it's been there before. So if you were to boil down, I just quoted the old, the old Covenant from Leviticus. Keep the law and you will live. Disobey the law and you will die. What does God tell Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Stay away from the fruit of the tree of, life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and you'll live and eat of it and you're going to die, Right? So we could boil it down and say, obey and live, disobey and die. So the question becomes, do Adam and Eve have a hard time with that? Before they sin? Naturally, they're obeying, correct? Naturally, they're obeying. What's the problem? After sin comes in, they're not naturally obeying anymore. And then the law says everyone who disobeys is under a what? Curse. And the curse, as we'll see in verse 13, is the curse of death, right? So the problem is we're all trying to live under the old covenant and be good people and do nice things, but the problem is we've all sinned, as he said, including Jews and Gentiles, and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, we're all under a curse of sin and death, right? So if the old covenant is obey and live and disobey and die, where, where do we first see the new covenant? Sorry? Where do we first see it? We see it at the cross, but where do we first see it? Well, we, it's reaffirmed there, but how about we go back to when Adam and Eve sin? Right? After they sin, they're, 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 they're afraid now, and they're hiding, and they're broken, and the Lord steps in and says, I will come and die in your place. And he gives that first promise, and he says, as your expression of faith in that, I want you to kill this animal that is innocent, right? I always think about when I was a child, I'll never forget, I grew up in North Florida, and we went out to Kingsley Lake, out from Stark, and my friend talked me into not paying the 25 cents to go in at Strickland's Landing and just to save the 25 cents and play pool later in the day. So we snuck in, you know, next door, and we went off the high dive, and I'll never forget coming up out of the water and looking up, and there was Mr. Strickland like that. Oh, brother, you know, this is terrible. I'm in trouble, and he pulls out his badge. I'm an auxiliary sheriff. And, but you know what I was really thinking? My parents love me. By the time the sun goes down tonight, I'll be at home in my bed, and everything will be okay, right? Adam and Eve probably thought, thought the same thing until the Lord comes and explains what's going to happen and has them kill the animal. And that, of course, is an expression of faith in the Messiah that would come. And so then it's renewed to Noah, and it's renewed to Abraham, and it's renewed all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures. And so they're looking forward to the Messiah. We're looking back to the Messiah. But Paul's crystal clear is the same Messiah that saves everyone. Now, let's look at our text one more time here in Galatians chapter 3. So he says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Do people ever tell you, well, you guys can keep the law if you want to be saved? Can you be, can you be saved by keeping the law? Can you be saved by the old covenant? Can anybody besides Adam and Eve be saved? By the old Dr. Harding used to have a wonderful line. He said, you know, the angel Gabriel lives perfectly by the old covenant. Right? 
And you know what? The other thing he said, he, he talked about the need of grace. You know, we need grace to be obedient, right? Because we're disobedient. So we all come under that condemnation of sin, and we all come under that, and uh, there's no way out for us except through Jesus. So curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And then it comes down to verse 13, which is perhaps my top five favorite verses. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, what's the curse of the law? First, it's disobedience that results in death, right? Christ redeems us from the curse of disobedience. Is that right? He redeems us from the curse of death by becoming a curse for us. Does he become disobedience for us? He himself bore our own sins and his own body on the tree, right? For God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So he becomes sin for us, right? He becomes a curse for us. And then it goes on to say, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus becomes the curse for us and experiences death for us. And then he adds this thing. Now, have you ever noticed in Scripture it says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the cross is foolishness to Greeks. The Greeks believed that if God could be moved by the sight of human pity, that humans would have power over God because we're manipulating his emotions. Okay? Strange idea, but that's what they thought. So they thought it's foolishness. God can be moved by our plight. This is, the gods are much, much more exalted than that. But what does he say about the Jews? It's not foolishness to Jews, it's what? A stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because the law says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So let me ask you a question. When they want to execute Jesus, they say, we have no right to execute a man to Pilate. Is that right? You think that's right? No. Because they didn't hesitate to kill who? Stephen. But how'd they kill Stephen? That's the Jewish method of capital punishment. They did not want Jesus to be stoned. They wanted Jesus to be cursed by being hung on a tree. That's why it's a stomach. A good friend of mine, Stephen Grabner, is Jewish, and he told me he was actually taught that as a child in Judaism, that Jesus could not be the Messiah because he's on a tree. So that's why they wanted it to go that way, which is what Paul says. So he goes to the, Paul says he actually goes to the very, very depths and takes the very curse of disobedience, the ultimate curse, upon himself so that we might be forgiving. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of disobedience, the curse of death, by becoming the curse for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a powerful and wonderful text that is, isn't it? So anyway, we have all of this in the Bible study, so we're trying to guide people. Can I, uh, often I'm told that I'm an old covenant Christian, and I found that the people who usually tell me that have no idea what the new covenant is. So what is a new covenant? God says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah after those days. I'll put their laws in your mind and heart. And we talked about the Shema and how they actually wear that on the outside. God's going to put it in their mind and heart. So you, the difference between the mind and the heart, so you know what is right. The heart, so you love what is right. Now, sometimes I know what is right. I'm going to be real honest with you. I know what is right. And guess what? I don't want to do it. I don't love it. Right? But God's saying, by grace, 
I'm going to forgive your sins, and I'm going to put my law in your mind so you know what is right, and I'm going to bring you to the place where you love what is right. I'm going to transform your life so that you can begin to love what is right. And, and have you noticed that in your own life? Yeah. You know, maybe you had a bad habit at one time, and now you look back at that bad habit, maybe you were a smoker, right? I was a smoker one time. And you think, you know, how could, how could somebody smoke, you know? Now, I'm just used to picking on that. I'm not picking on anybody who smokes by any means. But other things happen as well. We, we, God transformed us as we go along. So the new covenant is God will forgive our sins and, and remember our iniquities no more. And by the way, that means that we should forget also, right? If God's forgetting, let's forget. Let's don't keep digging it up. But then I'll put my laws in your mind and in your heart. Very few people who tell me I'm an Old Covenant Christian have any clue what the, old co- the New Covenant is. But it's crystal clear from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then repeated twice in Hebrews for us to have. And so in this uh, Bible study, with this particular episode and the study guide, we go through all of that material that we just went over, including writing it in your own mind and your heart. By the way, we might even call that the sealing of God, right? Settling into God's truth intellectually and spiritually so we know what is right and we love what is right. And, uh, and that's what we want to have. Well, let me have a prayer, and then we can take some questions and so on. Father in heaven, thank you so much this afternoon for the time we've had to come apart from our busy day and drift away to a faraway land and time and place, and we find ourselves back there cutting a covenant with Abraham and these strange things. And I just pray that somehow this might have come to life for us, that we might see something of your goodness and graciousness through all of this with Abraham and even with Jonathan and David and Mephibosheth. May it come to life in our hearts. And we thank you, Jesus, that you became a curse for us, that you might redeem us from the curse of the law so that we could have life. We accept that today. We want to live by faith in you as your man Abram did long ago. And we thank you for hearing our prayer now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, maybe you have some questions and so on.